I totally fucked up my bottle opener. I'm sorry. That's pretty pleasant. Yeah, I like it. It's not the best root beer I've had, but no, it's not. I like the dad's root beer, the one that's dad's like root beer is pretty good. Triple X root beer is pretty good. Today we are drinking Jones Cane Sugar Soda, the root beer version. It is from the Jones family, which has been independent since 1996. I think it's a perfectly passable root beer. It has a weird aftertaste, but I like it a lot better than Barks. This would be good with a float. This would be good float root beer. Oh it's my god! It's not expensive enough. I just had a flashback to my twentieth birthday when I mixed Fireball and root beer, and now I kind of want to throw up. Non-alcoholic Fireball, of right? Of course, of course, of course. Okay, because this is on the record. The world can hear our voices projected to the ends of time. Joel, quick, give me a high and low of your week. High and low of my week. Well, speaking of twentieth birthdays, let's talk about all the times I've gotten high. No, uh, <laughs> highest week. Ooh, that's an interesting question. I just replaced the windshield wipers on my car. Ooh. And that seems like really boring and innocuous, but every time it's rained recently, like my I windshield like wipers have just been yeah. smearing water across the windshield and I'm effectively blind, which is cool and good. And I feel like it's rained a lot recently just because mm-hmm. the universe was just like, he doesn't have proper wind. I feel like as soon as you put those on, it's going to stop raining for the rest of the year. Yeah, unfortunately, the low of my week is my car has been very ugly because it's raining so much and it's covered in mud stains. It's so okay. I need to go take it, you know, for a car wash. Are you becoming My a car dude? My first car wash. Oh, how cute. Are you becoming a car dude where you're just like super obsessed with your car? I have always been super obsessed with my car. I just haven't ever had a car to obsess over. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. What about yourself, Naomi? My high of this week, something funny. I have like several funny stories from this week. One of my funny stories is that my ex-boyfriend dropped off stuff at my house and a portion of the stuff that he dropped off at my house was not mine. <laughs> and I can't tell if it was like he did on purpose. Like it's some other bitches, like sorry, it's some other girl's stuff. And I don't know if he did it, like, to get a reaction out of me or if he just, like, honestly just didn't know. But, like, uh, go off, sis. Yeah, can we parse this a little? Because my personal take is most guys aren't smart enough to, like, plan that far ahead with, like, psychological trickery. I don't know if that's, like, accurate. I'm sure there's going to be a thousand women listeners who are like, well, actually. (laughs) But, yeah, I think it's more of, like... There could have been other women who stayed over at his house at some point in time. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And he just threw all the shit that yeah. looked fi- vaguely feminine in a box. Yeah. I don't know. You think it was intentional? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really, like, care enough to parse it out any more than that's I have, to be honest. It's definitely amusing, though. Yeah, it definitely was. Because I, like, called up Dad, and I was like, Dad, you got to listen to this. And he just, like, we just laughed together. <laughs> the low of this week, I have a large hangover from drinking lots of water last night. Good God, this is going to be used against you in a deposition. Uh, I'm super excited because September is ending, which means my birthday month is coming. So Boy, watch out, and all world. of your friends and family will be with you to celebrate your birthday. Joel's missing birthday. my birthday to go to freaking Europe, but like go off. I mean like. Yeah, why don't you tell the people the specific dates that I'm going to be gone. No, when no, the house no. is going to be empty. No, why would uh, I say that? My passport number, SSN, date of birth, hometown, favorite teachers in high school, Name of pets growing up. Another high of this week is that it's raining right now, so I'm like in a good mood. Like I'm all like cuddled up and like some like cute like. I spent like 20 minutes trying to replace windshield wipers. I'm not a in smart the man. rain. I'm not a smart man. <laughs> Naomi, what are we doing here? Welcome back to Why Will No One Date These Guys with the Naomi guy and Joel guy. A the podcast? Naomi guy. Yeah, yeah. Actually, someone actually came up to me at party last night and asked me that, and I was like, Oh shit! Heck yeah, it is. A podcast explaining do's and do nots. Do- donuts. I like do's and donuts. Of modern dating. So uh, welcome back. Today we're talking about crucial conversations. So I know everyone loves our book report episodes where Joel just goes over every book he's ever read and tries to tie it how no matter how <laughs> tangential it is to our main themes. This one is actually really important and I really like it and I think everyone should pay attention. There will be a test on this later. If you're a Patreon subscriber and you can't pass this test, you're going to have to pay twice as much what you're paying right now. So, yeah. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I do think this is like one of the most important books I've ever read and it's all about having tough, difficult conversations with people, which is a skill that applies directly to relationships. Often people avoid conversations about like minor issues and then that escalates and resentment grows and it blows up into bigger things. And it can be really helpful to have the tools to deal with problems before they start to degrade the relationship. 
therapy, like couples therapy, can be very useful, but it's like something that occurs after problems have often gotten out of control. Rarely people are like, let's start a relationship and go to therapy the entire time with a relationship because that'll make sure we we all are thinking on the right foot and doing the right things. I've been mulling this over. I read an article recently about like a celebrity that's been going to therapy with her husband for their entire marriage. And it's been like 17 years. And I was like, where's there going to be a point where you don't have to rely on the therapist to have like a functioning relationship? God, it's like the marriage of the therapist. I just like, seriously, like go to therapy. Like if you need that with your partner, but like there comes a point where I'm just like, is it even worth it? Like to like spend that amount of time, like in therapy and like be constantly like talking to your, it's like a third party in your relation. It's like a throuple at that point. I mean, what even happens if that therapist dies? Like, I'm not wishing that energy. No, like, get a new therapist, but, like, still, like, I just don't understand why you need- 17 years of marriage? Yeah, I don't know why you need a therapist in order to have, just in my personal opinion, I'm not always right, I'm gonna put that out there, but- In my personal opinion, if you have to be constantly like going to therapy in order for your relationship to function correctly, I see something wrong with that. I disagree. That's a sign of a healthy relationship. No issues whatsoever. So Naomi, can we talk about some issues in relationships? What are some like common disagreements couples have, whether minor or major? Putting the toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste. How many times has this happened to you in relationships? Or is it just something oh no, you I just remember dad telling me about his friend that got a divorce out over that. Oh, okay. Also, the fact that he didn't put the emergency brake on in his car, and so it would roll down the hill, and he crashed three separate cars doing that. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking along similar lines, like very minor stuff, like toilet paper, whether it goes up or down, toilet seats up or down, <laughs> um, general hygiene, and cleanliness of the house. Major stuff can be, you know, like the division of labor. That's a huge one. Like childcare. Like if your partner works and you don't, mm-hmm. that is like a huge point of tension in a lot of relationships. I think something pretty much no one does is talk about things they like or don't like in the bedroom. It's kind of just presumed that if a partner does something that's acceptable, and we talked about on the consent episode that, hey, you're an autonomous individual. You have the opportunity to, you know, voice your your opinion Especially when it comes to things like rough sex or oral sex or aftercare or things like that, which can be very important. I need to tell a story. I was recently asked what my love language was and I explained what my love language was. And then they asked me, this person asked me, because my love language is gift giving. And so, and like, I don't usually like being cuddled or like cuddling with someone. Like I just don't enjoy it. And so right after I said that my love language was gift giving, they asked me what my aftercare routine was if my love language wasn't like physical touch. And I was like, that is such a great question to ask. Like before you have intimate relations with a person, this was just like a friend, like it wasn't going to go anywhere like that. But I was like, that is such a great question to ask. I would say caution our listeners to not just randomly ask people that question. No, we were having a conversation okay. about things of that nature. So it wasn't like weird. It sure. was just okay. like, it was in the context. I think, you know, beyond that, there are other long-term issues in relationships that often aren't discussed until they become a problem. And that can yield, you know, divorces, yeah. fights, estrangement, things like, you know, when you want to get engaged, when you want to get married, how you want to structure finances, when you want add them to your insurance policy, when you want your partner and make sure that you're in their will, estate planning, you know, big picture items like that. Who your power of attorney goes to. Is That's a big an interesting one. question too. You know, visitation rights. Yeah. I'm not saying you need to sit down and hash all this out, but these are conversations you should probably have at some point yeah. before you plan to spend the rest of your life with somebody. Yeah. I think that's a big mistake that people make is like, they don't talk about like, how are we going to raise our kids? Like what religion are we going to raise our kids in? How are we going to figure out like this sort of situation if it arises? And like, you kind of just jump into it because obviously you're excited about getting married, but you don't understand that there's long-term effects. Like if you don't have those conversations, when are you going to have those conversations? And are they going to be as easy? Because like, if you want to have kids and your partner doesn't want to have kids, but you never talked about it before you got married, that's a reason to get a divorce. Like I've heard so many people get a divorce over something like that. And I think especially nowadays when it seems yeah. less and less people want kids you yeah. know it's it's not something you can presume 
I think in the past, you know, the expectation was everyone's getting married to have children. Yeah. And obviously there would be couples with infertility issues or couples that didn't abide by social norms. But in general, like you could just assume this is what the purpose of the relationship is. And that's no longer something you can take for granted. And thus, you know, it's something that you need to have difficult conversations about. So, like, I want to caveat this discussion of the book by saying it's not automatically going to solve every issue. Like, this is not magic. This isn't you waving a wand and, like, casting a spell. It creates an environment where issues can be discussed free from judgment. It is a fabled safe space. And while these are designed for, like, high-intensity important conversations, the same principles apply to even, like, low-risk conversations. Ones where, you know, people's feelings aren't necessarily going to be hurt. Where it can be very casual, where you can have, like, polite disagreements over issues and not worry that the relationships can be permanently altered because of this. Speaking of magic spells, I was on Etsy yesterday. And you can buy magic spells to seduce your lover, read their innermost thoughts, make people permanently attracted to you, make people break up with you. It's very cheap, too. Like We're talking like $8 to $31 for them to cast spells. So, Naomi, I think for a future episode, we need to purchase a bunch of magic spells and see how they affect your life. We're going to scientifically test this. Do you believe in, like, the power of, like, crystals, like, in any sort of, like... Absolutely not. Okay. Well, some people believe that, like, if you wear Moldavite, it, like, changes your life and just puts you, like, on the right path. So, like, a lot of people have, like, very large, like, shifts in their life after they start wearing Moldavite. So, this woman was wearing, like, earrings. Like, she started wearing Moldavite earrings. And her mom passed away. And then her therapist passed away, like, in the same week. And she was like, you know what? It's on the right path. (laughs) But yeah, that's what that reminded me of. I don't know why. But what I was going to say is that for future reference, we will be using these spells on random men that I meet on Bumble. Oh, excellent. that's the thesis. Great. That's deeply concerning. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll say this, and I, I think I've expressed similar sentiments in other episodes. I don't think that wearing certain rocks is going to make your life inherently better. I don't think a thing such as magic exists in this world. That said, I think people's personal witchy pagan self-care routines make them feel better. It helps them be more confident. It helps them think through things. They're more of tools to maintain balance in people's lives. And they're innocuous and not hurting anybody. So I don't care. We shouldn't judge people for having like weird habits. It's the same as someone who wears like a sports jersey because they want their team to win. Guys fall prey to superstition all the time. I don't think we need to call out women for having, you know, crazy crystal things. I would say it's a fairly gendered topic. Yes, men can like crystals, but I think that it's like, oh my God, I've seen so many profiles like on like dating apps that are like, if you're into astrology, just swipe left. Right. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people who are into these things don't necessarily think, oh, 100% everything this says is right. It's more of a way of thinking about the world and processing what they see around them. I might be a little turned off if somebody was like deeply convinced that like, the astrological calendar could dictate, you know, the future. Somebody told me that I was such an October Scorpio yesterday. Are you a Scorpio? I am a Scorpio. God, I'm such a bad brother not going knowing my sister's astrological sign. Max is a November Scorpio. Oh, that makes so much sense. He's 100% a Scorpio. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to crucial conversations and let's dig into this. So the authors of the book, Carrie Patterson, Joseph Grinney, Rob, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler. Give them studied, all credit. Yes. yes. If we were to do this in like MLA citation to be like Patterson et al. or something. <laughs> basically, they looked at workspaces for about 25 years trying to figure out common factors in organizational success. This is really important because companies like to invest hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year into programs to make their employees more efficient, be more productive, get the company culture and morale improved. So like it's worth investigating whether any of this stuff actually worked. And they found most new programs and organizational techniques and changes in hiring practices and specialized training didn't work out very well. Unless your training is based upon real world experience and insights at scale, I don't think it's worth very much. I think a lot of like this specialized training is utter hooey that's not really based in like any scientific management principles. It's more of like, wouldn't it be great if things were structured this way? But what they did find is that many successful organizations had people within them who were good at conversations, tough conversations that other workplaces would never have. Conversations about performance, company goals, team building, promotions, etc. And that makes a lot of sense because people often leave jobs because of bad leadership. 
Naomi, I know you've had some bad bosses before. Oh God, don't even get me started on that. Have your involvement with companies. Yeah. People don't like managers who scream at them. They don't like managers who are passive aggressive, who ignore their advice or take credit for their advice. But they also like people who deliver results and put in hard work. They want people who can lead without embodying the negative traits we often associate with success and leadership. I think in America, especially, there's this idea that the most competent people are, you know, workaholics who scream a lot and demean their employees, but they get results. They get things done. Uh, and often that's not true. That just causes employees to leave and be resentful. So maybe we can avoid that by practicing some better principles. I personally had a boss who was not passive aggressive, but as I like to say, aggressive aggressive. Everything I did was always wrong. I didn't really ever hear a good word of praise or support. It didn't matter if I was moving up the ranks. I was manager at the time that I was opening by myself. It was always like not good enough for her standards, which was great. But also it was the job I had. So what could I do? I will have to say this. It wasn't like I respected that person. I feared and loathed her in equal parts. And there was very high employee turnover, which was probably related to the fact that the work environment was very hostile. I can personally say that there would probably have been much less employee turnover and higher profit margins if there had been a modicum of respect given to the employees. Naomi, have you had any bad management? I think I've talked about this in the past. I had a boss that would get drunk on the job and then yell at me for things that weren't in my job description. So... Yeah, I came in one day to pick up my paycheck. Like she refused to do direct deposits into people's like bank accounts. So you had to like Ooh, go that's and manipulative. Like, you had to go and like pick up your paycheck. And so I'd stopped working there. I'd given her my two weeks notice, but I still needed to pick up my last paycheck. So I came in on a Friday night because it was the only time I had available. And I was like, okay, all my like favorite people are working. Like I'll just say bye to them then. So I go in and she's like, you know how busy we are on Friday nights. You could have come any other day of the week and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yo. It's going to take me three hours to pick up this piece of paper, this envelope holding your check and hand it to you. She was like, it's so busy. And like, we have two bartenders working right now. And I was like, okay, but that has nothing to do with me. Like, this is going to take two seconds out of your day. And it'll be one last thing you have to think about. I disagree. How dare you, Naomi? I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's not great. And that's also great down the line when you talk trash about that business and then they have a bad reputation as a bad employer. Glassdoor yeah. is great. I appreciate Glassdoor for people being able to leave honest reviews of their employers or former employers. But the same idea like that there are bad managers and like bad communicators and a lot of businesses applies to relationships as well. Like a lot of people let stuff go unspoken. They don't want to talk about stuff that makes them uncomfortable because stuff that makes them uncomfortable makes them uncomfortable. They're they're literally afraid of having this conversation because of concerns that, you know, how this is going to be interpreted by their partner. So we've talked about like the importance of boundaries and communication relationships, but we haven't really gotten to the fact that it's not an easy thing to enforce. Like it's good that you understand the principles of consent, but as we talked about in that consent episode, a lot of young women don't even know how to say the words no. Like they can't even refuse like polite requests that people give them. So it's important to like practice these skills and like learn as much as we can about them so when the time comes and we have to have difficult conversations we're mentally prepared already and have the tools in order to achieve success so i have a question for you naomi okay where did you learn about communication in relationships or did you even learn ever about communication relationship i was just always told that like any relationship i don't know where it started but i was just told that like any relationship is good with communication They just said communication. It was vague. It was never like, I think that a good relationship has effective communication, but people I've learned throughout the years that different people grow up obviously in different households, meaning they have different forms of communication. I know someone that I grew up with and the way that her family communicates is yelling at each other. And it's not like, it's not an aggressive yelling. It's just like, that's how they communicate. And that's how they like, talk and stuff. And it might seem to us that it's aggressive or strange. And like, it makes me feel very anxious when I'm in the presence of their conversations, but different people have different ways of communicating. And I think that everybody needs to understand that. 
You're reminding me that earlier this week, I saw a post on the subreddit, Am I the Asshole? Where people like ask questions about whether or not their actions make them the asshole in certain yeah. situations. And this post was someone who was like, is it my fault my sister's now anorexic? And basically, the premise oh was the sister used to be really into cooking. Yeah. And she gained a little bit of weight after she'd been cooking for a while. And so the parents and like the whole family, when like they got in arguments, would like refer to her as a whale and a cow. Oh my and, like, God. Why and, are you and, smiling? And the way <laughs> they phrase this, the person who's like talking about this and they're like, Am I the asshole? is like, But you know, this is something families do, you know, like insult the weight of all the family members. Like, you know, it wasn't really meant to be offensive. It's just, you know, something playful we do. And so now, like, my sister isn't eating at all. She's always walking everywhere and never has any time for meals. And like, is it technically my fault that she's now anorexic? And there's a certain amount of Sir, tone you are there. the asshole. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think a lot of families do not teach proper communication skills. And I personally did not recall ever taking a communication skills class. You could argue that speech debates kind of like communication, but it's mostly like, here's how you politely yell at somebody and affirm that you're correct. Yeah. And even then, like the way debate is taught you don't really ever convince people of anything. It's more of like convincing an outside observer that you're correct under a very specific set of conditions. And that's not a skill that's really helpful in the real world unless you plan to be a lawyer or run for political office. So that's cool and good. Okay, so let's jump directly into the book and learn some skills that will helpfully help relationships. And we're going to break this up and I will do some question and answers. Hopefully we can talk about how this ties directly to relationships. The part of this summary is from Revi Kumar's write-up of the book in Medium on February 3rd of 2018. I have, in fact, read this book several times, I promise. I just wanted like an easy template to build the episode around. So chapter one starts with the big question, what is a crucial conversation? And the authors say, what qualifies a conversation to be crucial is that the results of it could have a huge impact on the quality of your life. A conversation involving your promotion, relationship with your spouse, debate over property, etc. In short, crucial conversations are discussion between one or more people, sorry, two or more people, where <laughs> one or more people, <laughs> if you're talking to yourself, can be very <laughs> crucial, between two or more people where number one, stakes are high. Two, opinions vary. And three, emotions run strong. Most of us are masters in avoiding how to make such crucial conversations because it's human nature to avoid pain and discomfort. We did talk about this in the self-care episode. I did enjoy that self-care episode. But yes, people are kind of naturally inclined to avoid things that make them uncomfortable. They have all sorts of mental coping mechanisms to make life less uncomfortable. So you have to like really untrain yourself from the brain's natural tendency to you know run away or avoid problems problems or um, you know, refuse to confront them head on. So what do a lot of people do when they faced with a crucial conversation? Well, you can avoid them, you can face them and handle them poorly, or you can face them and handle them well. And you really do have to fight that. Like I did speech and debate, I taught speech and debate, I spent a lot of time speaking in public, and I'm still really bad at speaking in public. It's not something I've practiced a lot in the last couple of years. And I do get kind of like nervous and like, get shortness of breath and sweaty palms and whole nine yards. Like, I know I can do a good job speaking. I'm not concerned about the quality of my skills, but there is something about, like, speaking in public that still, like, gets me. Apparently, one of people's biggest fears when surveyed every year is having to speak in public. And it kind of makes sense because it's like you're a piece of prey in front of a large audience of predators. It's a disconcerting feeling putting yourself out in the world and having to string words together in order to not sound like an idiot. One thing that I try to do when I'm like put in uncomfortable situations is I repeat the mantra that I am feeling an emotion, but I am not that emotion. And that sounds kind of dumb, but like it'll be like, I am feeling afraid. <laughs> I am not afraid. I am feeling uncomfortable. I am not uncomfortable. I am feeling nervous about asking this girl out. I am not a nervous person by nature. I'm feeling awkward standing in the corner at this party where I don't know anybody. I'm not like an awkward person. And I think often a lot of what makes people respond poorly in these situations is that the surge of chemicals to your brain makes you live out this kind of story where suddenly the emotion becomes your identity and you can't imagine another situation where you're ever going to be comfortable in this environment. And it's important to like literally walk yourself through the idea that you are not whatever emotion you're experiencing at that point in time, that you are much more than the circumstances at that moment. 
Does that make sense? Does that seem like something that can be helpful? I don't know if you've ever done anything like that. I don't know. I'm like in that certain situation, I was like watching a TED talk like about I guess like every high schooler watches TED talk because it's pretty freaking popular. They quoted it on Sex Education, the show on Netflix. Go watch that. Great show. Where like the Superman pose that you do like right before you like publicly speak and it's like supposed to like help you with your nerves and like make you like more confident. That's what I do. I understand what you're saying. I just like I'm one of those people that I just need like push through and I can't like talk myself out of like what I'm feeling. It's mm-hmm. very hard for me to do that. Fair enough. No, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you can find something that works for you, again, listen to the self-care episode because the self-care episode goes through strategies to overcome nervousness. I think some of the good ones it recommends is like, you know, walking around barefoot. So you suddenly experience like a rush of other sensations your body's going to focus on, hold an ice cube in your hand, let it melt. You recall this episode? I you were have sitting here. so many ice cubes at school right before I'm about to go and publicly speak. I just well, take out my ice episode. cubes out of my freezer and I just put them in my hand and I wait for them to melt. There were some really good coping techniques, Naomi. Re-listen to that episode. So chapter two talks about the importance of dialogue. And at the core of every successful conversation, they argue there lies the free flow of relevant information. People openly and honestly express their opinions, share their feelings, and articulate their theories when there's, you know, the opportunity to do so. They willingly share their views, even when the ideas are controversial or unpopular. And it's the one thing extremely effective communicators are routinely able to achieve. That's dialogue. It's the free flowing of meaning between two people. So the authors talk a lot about the concept of shared meaning. And basically, each of us enters conversations with our own opinions, feelings, theories, and experiences about the topic at hand, right? We have real-world experience about what's going on. We assume we have a good grasp of the situation. We want the other to understand that. The unique combination of thoughts and feelings makes up our own personal pool of meaning. This pool not only informs us, but also drives our every action. When two of us enter crucial conversations, by definition, you don't share the same pool, Right. If we return to that definition of crucial conversation, it's a conversation where opinions vary. It's not one where you're coming in with the same idea about like what needs to be done. If you agreed, it wouldn't be a crucial conversation. You'd just be like, oh, yeah, let's do that and move on with your lives. So people who are skilled at dialogue do their best to make it safe for everyone to add their meaning to the shared pool, even ideas that at first glance appear controversial, wrong, or at odds with their own beliefs. They don't agree with every idea, but they simply do their best to ensure that all ideas find their way into the open. So as the pool of shared meaning grows, it helps people in two ways. First, as individuals are exposed to more accurate and relevant information, they make better choices. In a very real sense, the pool of shared meaning is a measure of the group's IQ. The larger the shared pool, the smarter decisions, or at least more reflective of the knowledge base that you're pulling from when making decisions. And even though more people may be involved in the choice, when people openly and freely share ideas, the increased time investment is more than offset by the quality of the decision. On the other hand, we've seen what happens when the shared pool is dangerously shallow, and when people like withhold information... Often smart people can make dumb decisions. So in order to have like an effective workplace environment, you need to have a pool of shared meaning. You need to have the opportunity for people to like openly and honestly communicate. Now, how that fits together with the previous chapter is when the stakes are high, opinions vary and emotions run strong. So we often aren't sharing because we're not at our best. We're focusing on avoiding this conversation, finishing up as quickly as possible. You might agree to things you wouldn't necessarily agree to just to wrap it up. It's important to make sure that we all have the tools necessary to make it safe to discuss these issues and come to a shared pool of meaning. So I do have to wonder, Naomi, have you had like serious issues in relationships before where you feel that there was information you didn't want to talk about, but like did need to be discussed in some capacity? Yes, I do feel as if like in both friendships and relationships, like I've had things that I want to talk about, but because of fear of being like invalidated for a variety of reasons because of like past experiences. I didn't want to bring it up because I would feel, I felt as if I would get my feelings hurt again and it wasn't worth it to me to do that. I think a lot of people have friendships where you feel you give a lot more to the friendship than the other person. Okay. I don't know. Would you agree? But basically you feel, you know, you recognize their birthday. You get them like a little gift every Christmas. You text them at random with, you know, stuff that you found that you think is cute. You make them coconut cake and they don't like it. That you make them coconut cake and they throw it in the trash. Yeah. You know, that's just a general example, but uh, (laughs) I think that that's something that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. And I think you sometimes want to have the conversation with somebody, you know, 
do you actually want this friendship? Are you as engaged in this as I am? But you also recognize that if you do have that conversation, that might be the end of the friendship. And so it's dangerous. You know, it's, it's again, a place where you might have different opinions on both sides and where emotions run high. And so people obviously want to ignore that. So it's important, again, try to build this pool of shared meaning where people can come together. Now, I swear we're going to get to like actual principles at some point. They're really just outlining like general issues that form the problems that, you know, crucial conversations meant to resolve. So chapter three says in conversations, you want to start with heart. You got to stay focused on what you really want. So given that conversations can cause emotions to run high, you have to mentally prepare yourself and think about where you want the conversation to go in advance. So the first important thing is to start with your heart. Start with like your emotional center. And how you do that is ask yourself some questions about the conversation in advance. Questions could be like, what do I really want for myself? Do I really want this friendship to continue? Am I really committed to, you know, continuing to be friends with this person long term? What do I really want for others? Do I think that, you know, let's say Melinda is going to be able to, you know, survive. Freaking Melinda. Freaking Melinda is going to be able to, you know, do all right without my emotional support, without me bailing her out of jail on a weekly basis, without me, you know, giving her free rides to her drug dealer. Well, I'd love to talk about that. Just touch on that really quickly. I think that a lot of people don't understand that, like, if another person is struggling, it is not your personal responsibility to help them through their struggle. I know that a lot of people take that on and take on like the other person's struggle, but it is not your job to help other people and it is not your job to please other people and think about their feelings before your own. I know that this is really hard to learn. It's taken me years to learn. I'm still currently working on it. But if you are not comfortable, if you are not feeling as if you are being your most authentic self by helping another person, you can communicate with that person, say, hey, look, I need to take a step back. I need to find my peace. This is not what's making me feel peaceful. And make sure that you are putting your feelings before the other person's feelings because it's your reality. It's your world. The world revolves around you because it's your world. What a libertarian ethos. My my sister, the Randian. (laughs) I think that's a good point. That's not to say don't do those things. Like still give cash to the homeless, still support people in times of need. Just like don't expect that magically you're going to get something at the end of the day. Don't expect that you're all your effort is going to be rewarded at the end of time when you stand before your creator at the pearly gates. Don't think that like life is going to work out for you just because you do good things. Don't expect the impossible out of an impossible situation. That seem fair? Yeah, that's okay. Fair. So again, the questions you should be asking is, you know, what do I really want for myself? What do I really want for others? What do I really want for the relationship? Like, is this relationship with Melinda actually something you want to continue or just something you've been, you know, perpetuating since you were friends in college and don't want to lose that? Freaking Melinda. Freaking Melinda. <laughs> and then how would you behave if you really wanted those results? Like, what would you change about your personal behavior? Because often, Naomi, I think we forget the only person who behavior we can actually control is ourselves. Right. As much as we'd like to be able to control the outcome of like other people in our lives, the only thing we know for certain that we have some degree of control over is the person that's us. That's not entirely true. That's only true if you're not a manipulative, abusive person. Even manipulative people don't always get the results they want. Uh, Most of the time. they, They might be better at getting the results they want, but again, it's not guaranteed. The only thing they can guarantee is, you know, how they're talking and interacting with other people. Continue on with what you were saying. Okay. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't think about those things. They get bogged down by what they're feeling at the moment, not what they want for the long term. And so it's really important to stick to your original objectives when you get to these crucial conversations and not go for the quick, satisfactory result of the conversation. If you want to have an emotionally honest conversation with people, you can't bail as soon as like the conversation gets rough and like actual feelings are emitted. And that's, I think, what kind of pisses me off. Maybe I've talked about this before, but like people are always like, how are you? And they never want to have a conversation about your emotional state. It's such like a weird like turn of phrase that's just meant to be like, hi, I'm recognizing you're in the room. And I'm just going to move on with my life. And then you inconvenience them if you're like, actually, not great. You know, I, I just lost a bunch of money in the stock market. My cat, you know, he's a little cough. Freaking Melinda. Melinda's been kicking my cat. <laughs> <laughs> nearly got arrested bringing Melinda to a drug dealer the other day. <laughs> Freaking Melinda. <laughs> 
Yeah. So there is an innate human desire also to win. Unfortunately, as we grow older, most of us don't realize that the desire to win is often driving us away from healthy dialogue. We want to not just resolve a problem, but come up with a solution that gives us a victory. And that's really dangerous. So when someone raises a red flag of inaccuracy, like when we raise an issue, but like the issue wasn't fully like articulated or you missed an important fact, we try to correct it as soon as possible. We quibble over details and point out flaws in the other person's arguments. That's not constructive. People also want to remain safe. So we don't always fix mistakes, aggressively discredit others, or heartlessly try to make them suffer. Sometimes we choose personal safety over dialogue. Rather than add to the pool of meaning and possibly make waves along the way, we go to silence, and we're so uncomfortable with immediate conflict that we accept the certainty of bad results to avoid the uncomfortable conclusions. There's also this concept that they bring up in the chapter about the sucker's choice, and that's this idea that there's not a way to tell your peer your real concerns and not insult or offend them. There's not a way to talk to your neighbors about their annoying behavior and not come across as self-righteous or demanding. So the sucker's choice is people thinking that they have to do one thing or the other, right? That you either have to put up with bad behavior of your partner or the relationship ends. You think that if I have this difficult conversation about the cleanliness of the house, they're going to, you know, in this relationship permanently. If, you know, I bring up these issues, he's going to go running to his parents and that's going to yield, you know, other issues long term. Don't fall into this idea that the only options are no conversation or bad conversation because there are options for having good constructive conversations. Yeah, just keep in mind, you know, look for the general questions you want to answer, figure out what you want out of it, and stick to that as you get into these conversations and make the conversation safe. But what does that look like? Well, chapter four talks about exactly that, and that's noticing when safety of people is at risk. Unfortunately, this can mean like genuine safety. Most of the time, it just means that is it a place where feelings are going to get hurt, where like people's mental health isn't going to be great. In general, in a crucial conversation is difficult to see exactly what's going on and why, because we get so caught up in what we're saying that it can be nearly impossible to pull ourselves out of the argument in order to see what's happening to ourselves and to others. So how do you look for you know, th- these issues when you're in the middle of a crucial conversation? And the authors argue it helps to watch for three different conditions. So the first thing is the moment the conversation turns crucial, the signs that people feel safe, and then your own style under stress. So the first thing is learning to spot crucial conversations. Figure out, you know, is this a point where our opinions are disagreeing, where they're, you know, conversations, the, the stakes of this conversation are high, where, you know, people's feelings can potentially get hurt and identify the idea that like this conversation could have like serious repercussions on a relationship long term. That's super important. You don't want to go into a gunfight without guns. You don't want to get into a crucial conversation without already having mentally prepped yourself. I don't for think that. you want to get into a gunfight, period. This is true. But if you are in a gunfight, you probably want guns. <laughs> Second, look for safety problems. Pay attention to the content and the idea that people are becoming fearful. If people start to shut down the conversation, that's probably an indication that like they're afraid. And then look for your own style under stress. Learn to look for when things become unhealthy. Learn to look for, you know, your behaviors. See, you try to detect, you know, when your heart rate gets high. Start to detect when you become argumentative. Try to kind of analyze the meta, you know, your own actions outside of yourself rather than, you know, sticking to whatever your emotional state takes you to. So what is safety? Well, chapter five talks about making it safe. In a dialogue when it's safe, you can say anything because gifted communicators keep a close eye on safety. Dialogue calls for the free flow of meaning. And when you fear that people aren't buying into your ideas, you start pushing too hard. When you fear that you might be harmed in some way, you can talk about almost anything. Sorry, you start withdrawing and hiding. Both these reactions to fight and to take flight are motivated by the same emotion. Fear. On the other hand, if you make it safe enough, you can talk about almost anything and people will listen. If you don't fear that you're being attacked or humiliated, you yourself can hear almost anything and not become defensive. So here's how you actually create safe spaces. One of the first things is identifying mutual purpose. So mutual purpose means that others perceive that we're working towards a common outcome in the conversation, that we care about their goals, interests, and values, and vice versa. We believe that they care about ours. Otherwise, like we wouldn't be having this conversation if we didn't think that anything we were talking about would have an impact on their attitudes. We probably wouldn't have the conversation to begin with. Mutual purpose is an entry condition of dialogue. You have to find a shared goal and you both have to have a good reason and healthy climate for talking. So ask yourself some questions to determine whether or not mutual purpose is at risk. Do others believe I care about their goals in the conversation? Do they trust my motives? Uh, Remember the mutual mutual purpose. It's not a technique to succeed in crucial conversations unless actually care about the interests of others, not just their own. So after you've established mutual purpose, there has to be mutual respect. 
You can't stay in a conversation if you don't maintain mutual respect, which is the continuance condition of dialogue. As people perceive that others don't respect them, the conversation immediately becomes unsafe and dialogue comes to a screeching halt. The reason for that, the authors argue, is because respect is like air. The instant people perceive disrespect in the conversation, the interaction is no longer about its original purpose. It's now about defending dignity. So can you respect people you don't actually respect? Well, the authors argue that dialogue is doomed. If like in every single situation, we had to share every single objective and respect every other element of a person's character, you're probably going to have conversations in your life with people you like absolutely despise. You're probably going to have conversations with people who like, you know, have done heinous shit in the past. Feelings of disrespect often come when we dwell on how others are different from ourselves, and we can counteract those feelings by looking for ways we are similar. Without excusing their behavior, we can try to sympathize and even empathize with them. When we recognize that we all have weaknesses, it's easier to find a way to respect others. When we do this, we feel kinship, a sense of mutuality between ourselves and even the thorniest of people. It's a sense of kinship and connection to make it safe, that others motivates us into tough conversations, and eventually enables us to stay in dialogue with virtually anyone. Okay. So let's go over that. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing in any crucial conversation is you need to have a mutual purpose with the other person. The reason you're having a conversation is because you both want a common objective. There is an issue with cleanliness in this house. There's an issue with a lack of sexual satisfaction in the bedroom. There is an issue with, it seems, different ideas in this relationship about whether or not we're going to get married in the next few years. You both have the mutual purpose of like, trying to resolve an issue without the relationship falling apart. And we're talking about relationships, but again, this applies to business as well. You know, you might have the mutual purpose of trying to stay in your job and not disrupt the workplace, but you also, you know, want to get a bump in salary or something. You want your ideas to be recognized and you want your boss to, you know, identify you as someone who's, you know, worthy of promotion or recognition. You have to have the mutual purpose there. And then after that, you have to establish mutual respect. Where even if you don't like the person, even if you like have serious problems with them, you have to not turn it into a question of like headbutting. Because even if you have a mutual purpose at the beginning, the instant you look down on somebody, you've lost their attention. If I'm like, hey, I want to have a conversation about the relationship, specifically how clean the house is, and that's followed with, well, I know you're super lazy and you can never get anything done right. That's the end of the conversation, right? Even if yeah. you both have the end goal of a cleaner house, the idea that you've like now attacked that person's character means the conversation's either over or it's going in a very bad direction. And it's also hard to like not give off the impression that you're looking down on them because like if you are like I'm like a super neat person and like I've lived with people that like aren't. And so like it's hard for me to like portray the fact that like I just want like the common goal and like to me, my perspective is right, but to them, their perspective is right. So, like, it's very hard to not give the impression that I'm looking down on them. That's a really good point, Naomi. Even if I might be. And the authors directly address that because you're completely correct. The fact you're bringing up this conversation typically means that you have a serious problem with that other person, right? Like, you want something to be resolved, and they're the ones who are responsible for either it not having been resolved or standing in the way of you getting it done, right? So from the get-go, a lot of these crucial conversations might be aggressive. And so you're completely correct that you may run into problems with this mutual respect and people like not buying that you have respect for them. So they then have three tactics to help rebuild mutual respect or purpose if you feel it's faltering in the conversation. So the first thing is to apologize when appropriate. When you've made a mistake that has hurt others, like you didn't call your partner, you know, when you were on a trip and they feel like slighted, like they're not part of your life, start with an apology. An apology is a statement that sincerely expresses your sorrow for your role in the causing, or at least not preventing, pain or difficulty to others. An apology isn't really an apology unless you experience a change of heart. To offer a sincere apology, your motives have to change. You have to give up saving face, being right, or winning in order to focus on what you really want. You have to sacrifice a bit of your ego by admitting your error. But like many sacrifices, when you give up something you value, you're rewarded with something even more valuable, healthy dialogue and better results. So if somebody starts to, you know, become aggressive because it seems you've insulted their character and they don't think that the conversation is a place that has mutual respect, you can start immediately go, look, I, I apologize. I know this is a difficult conversation to have. I genuinely do want this house to be cleaner. I genuinely do want this relationship to work out. I know that I'm not the nicest of people and I apologize. I need to work on my communication skills and I promise that's something I'm focusing on. Yeah, you do. Damn. 
The second option to repair is contrast to fix misunderstanding. So when others feel disrespected during crucial conversations, even if you haven't done anything disrespectful, the insult is unintended. When others misinterpret your purpose or your intent, step out of the argument and rebuild safety by using contrasting. So contrasting is a don't slash do statement that addresses others' concerns you don't respect them, or they have a malicious purpose, the don't part, and confirms your respect or clarifies your real purpose, the do part. For example, here's the don't part. The last thing I wanted to do is communicate that I don't value the work you put in. The do part, I think your work has been nothing short of spectacular, right? So you immediately fix the impression in their mind that you've insulted them. Don't say, I don't want you to think that I believe you're a bad partner. I think you contribute a huge amount to this relationship. That's the do part, right? You've always been really supportive of me when, you know, I've been in school, when, you know, our, our kid has been sick, when, you know, our, our finances have been low and we have to, you know, put in some extra hours. Make sure that you reiterate you respect the person and that you think their skills are like worthy of respect. The other really important thing is to crib. Now, CRIB is a really useful acronym, and it's like so useful. I've had it written down on a note card, like in my wallet, for the past couple of years. These are the Why things I carry around in, in my wallet. Do you wallets. read things in your wallet often? Naomi, it's important to have a tool set and important conversations you can pull out and mentally prep yourself for. So, CRIBing. <laughs> CRIBing stands for committing to seek mutual purpose, recognizing the purpose behind the strategy, inventing a mutual purpose, and brainstorming new strategies. So the first one is committing to mutual purpose. Make a unilateral public commitment to stay in the conversation until you come up with something that serves everyone. We are going to continue talking until we find a solution that works for both of us. I don't want a solution that makes one of us feel bad. I think it's really important that we both stay in here and you know find something that keeps us together, that keeps our house clean, that keeps our kids fed, that keeps our mother-in-laws out of the, the house. Whatever you know, <laughs> conversation you want to have with somebody. Recognize the purpose behind the strategy. So ask people why they want what they're pushing for. Separate what they're demanding from the purpose they serve. So commit to seek mutual purpose and then demonstrate that you understand why the mutual purpose is important. Look, I get where you're coming to me. I get why you're frustrated. I recognize that you have a completely valid point of view and that there's a middle ground between those. Then you need to invent a mutual purpose. So if after everyone clarifies their motives in the conversation and you're still at odds, see if you can vent a higher or longer term purpose that is more motivating than the ones that keep you in conflict. So I want to do a little bit of thought about this. Can we come up with like a good example of a relationship issue that we haven't already discussed that we can like dig into? Putting the toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste bottle. Okay, so I will be the one who refuses to put the toothpaste bottle back on. You can be the person who does. In this instance, your point of view would be saying something along the lines of, I don't like it when the toothpaste cap is off. It looks messy. I do not like green eggs and ham, Sam, I am. (laughs) My point of view is when I'm brushing my teeth, either in the morning or evening, I'm often super tired and I forget to do that. It's never been something I've done in any prior relationship throughout my life. I don't understand why this is so important to you. So now we have to create a mutual purpose. And the mutual purpose would be a higher goal beyond either of our current existing goals. And that mutual purpose can be cleanliness of the entire house, making our house look good for when other people come over, keeping the standards of cleanliness the same between the two of us so that neither of us is, you know, performing more labor than the other, right? It's taking the two separate goals and finding something that's more important than either of those or the two separate points of view and finding something that works even higher than that. And then the final part of CRIB is brainstorming new strategies. So with a clear mutual purpose, you can join forces in searching for a solution that serves everyone. So in this example, it could be that me, the person who's not putting the toothpaste cap on, hasn't recognized how important it is to you and how like this is going to affect you know how others see us. And I'll just be like, look, you're right. It's not been something I've thought about. I'm going to you know commit to putting the toothpaste cap back on. Okay? Now, that's not always going to happen. Maybe you can find something more inventive like... If you ever see the toothpaste cap off, you're going to put it back on. But in return, I'm going to make sure that, you know, the floor is kept clean of stains, right? I'm not always awake in the morning. I'm not always awake in the evening. But like every week, I'm going to go through and like mop the floor. And that way, we both get, you know, new cleanliness of the house. We both have a better put together apartment, shared living space. So again, you want to commit to seeking mutual purpose. Recognize the purpose behind the strategy, invent a new mutual purpose, 
and brainstorm new solutions. And that is a really good way of restoring people's respect for you if you can recognize their point of view and come up with something that incorporates their point of view into the long-term solution. You don't want to kind of unilaterally say, this is the best option in order to avoid hurt feelings. So Naomi, we are on page nine of 17. We're about halfway through. Do we want to wrap this up and turn it into a two-parter? Yes, I need to pee. That sounds like a plan. Well, we will be back very shortly for ourselves, maybe as late as next week for you with part two of Crucial Conversations. Again, this is a summary of a book meant to help business and personal relationships and overcome obstacles and adversity. And hopefully by listening to this, you can learn some stuff you will use in your everyday life. Naomi, Patreon. We have a Patreon now. Yes, please visit our Patreon. I think our top tier is what, $10, $15? It's $10. We are looking for patrons as yourself, but we like to reiterate the fact that we are not looking for any money if you cannot afford it. We're just looking to boost up the quality of our content with some fun ideas that we have that require a little bit of extra spending money. So please go check that out for exclusive content and fun things of that sort. It's at patreon.com slash date these guys also if you haven't already follow us on twitter and instagram at date these guys and as always please dm us your relationship questions ask us advice we love responding to those and as always use multiple forms of birth control in the bedroom yes and never share sex toys have a great week we have many thanks for the use of our theme music which is the song drop by ketza you can find more of their music online at ketza.uk You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at DateTheseGuys or visit our website at DateTheseGuys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at DateTheseGuys at gmail.com. If you're looking to make an impact, this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception, clinical breast examinations, cervical cancer screenings, pregnancy testing, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services. Approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood. You could be too. The intro and outro music of Why Will No One Date These Guys is from the song Drop by the artist Ketza. It is licensed through Creative Commons, and we are deeply appreciative that they've allowed us to use it. 